Good morning. So, kids, before you go stampeding off for Children's Church this morning, I'm a clicker. I'm a clicker this week. Uh, I decided that you need to have a preview of the sermon today. You need to have some idea of what we're going to be talking about in here before you go out there. You ready? Kids, you paying attention? Here it is. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Beat it. You can go to children's church now. You all needed that, right? Yeah. Good luck, Andrea. (laughs) Well, there is much ground to cover today, so let's pray before we get started. Lord, we're grateful again for the chance to be here this morning to have a, uh, a cool place uh, of worship. We are thankful for the gift of this building, for all the ways that you have blessed us over these many years here in Prosser. Um, and Lord, we're grateful for the gift of your word, uh, for all that we find in there, how it, it teaches us and it guides us and admonishes us at times, how it corrects us at times. Um, but we're, we're grateful for how it is calling us forward for uh, calling us to responsibility, calling us to Christ-likeness, and how it paints a picture of a perfect redemption and perfect love. Lord, we are grateful for this gift of corporate worship also, and how that is uh, uh, intended to be encouraging, how we, all, we are to bear one another's burdens, to lift one another up, uh, and we're not alone as we go through these ch- the challenges of this life. Uh, and, and so as part of that, Lord, we pray for Kim and Patty and for the, uh, the, the continuation of their process for Kim's treatment. Um, Lord, we pray that the, uh, the, the treatment plan is effective. Um, we pray that uh, he has good medical attention, good doctors, good nurses. Um, and Lord, that, that Kim is responsive um, to the treatment. Uh, and we, we pray this morning for Scotty and Melanie also. We found out that, that, that Scotty is in with a, with a minor heart attack um, in the hospital uh, as of last night. So we pray for them and their quick recovery this morning. Um, and, and for others who may be unwell for a variety of reasons. Um, Lord, and I pray that you just bless our time together this morning, that we hear what you have for us. Um, and as we'll see, your, your word is so vast and so rich and so deep. Lord, help us find some application for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, so as, as I was going over this, uh, the text this week and, and um, thinking through how it correlates with the sermons over the last several weeks, um, the last half of Ephesians, really, I had this kind of random series of thoughts as to how it kind of all fit together. Uh, and so if you'll indulge me for a moment, I'm going to force those thoughts onto you. Uh, it, and, and hopefully it comes together a little more um, uh, connected. It seems a little disjointed in my head sometimes, but it's, it's such a big picture. I felt like we needed to understand this before we move forward. So before we continue, through, uh, continue our journey through the book of Ephesians this morning, um, we're going to start by reading from the book of Genesis. So let's go back to Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You with me so far? So we all know what happens after that, right? Creation was, was, was spoken into existence. We, the, the, the earth, the darkness and the void moved from chaos to structure. It moved from disorder to order. It moved from non-functional to perfectly functional, and it was all good. 
And this process seems to have been, you know, supervised, superintended, overseen by the presence of the Spirit of God. And then, of course, came the introduction of humans. So perfect order and and perfect structure of creation ended up being cursed as a result of sin. And we have been living in and with varying levels of chaos and disorder ever since. What God made perfect, the sin of man made imperfect. Now we jump ahead to Ephesians, a couple years, 30, 40 years. Jump ahead to Ephesians, and we, we've discussed how Ephesus was a city that was widely known for its acceptance of, its promotion of magic and the occult. It was the, it was the home city of the temple of, of the god Artemis. Uh, temple prostitution was an accepted form of worship. Paganism and heathenism and, and worship of false gods all ran rampant throughout the culture, even celebrated. It was part of the culture. And from God's perspective, his creation continued to be rebellious and sinful, and it resulted in ongoing chaos and disorder. But God did not give up on his creation, especially on the human part of creation. We had been created in God's own image. We were called to something better. We were called to something more. And from the time of the fall onward, God continued to work to restore order to the, to the culture at large, but primarily to restore order between God and man. He wanted us to be back in relationship together. I mean, there's the, the flood and, and his work through the nation of Israel. The whole sacrificial system was all designed to help bring and restore order, to help uh, restore the relationship between God and man. The Lord continued to provide redemption and salvation, order and peace. And it culminated with the arrival of God with us. The life death, and resurrection of Jesus provided the ultimate path of redemption for all those who believe. And it was available to everyone. And so according to God's plan, his spirit, the spirit of God, would again move, would move the culture towards redemption and salvation, but this time it was going to move through the church, through the believers, through the followers of Jesus Christ, whose, whose death and resurrection provided for our redemption. It gave us a new life. It gave us a new opportunity to live according to God's plan for his creation. So Paul writes, at the prompting of the Spirit, well, first he visited Ephesus, spent a couple of years helping establish and build up a church. He provided the foundation. He helped them to, to connect with their creator. He helped them establish the spiritual foundation built on Christ. And he taught them how to give up the old sinful life and move into a new sanctifying life with the help of the Spirit. So Paul left a couple years later. He writes this letter that we've been studying, this letter to the church in Ephesus. And in this letter, which is six short little chapters as we know them, Paul refers to the Spirit of God 14 times. Here's a sample. Chapter 1, verse 13. He says, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. You have access in one spirit to the Father. You've been strengthened with power through his spirit. You are renewed in the spirit of your mind. Don't get drunk, but be filled with the spirit. So Paul reminds the church of Christ's redemptive work on the cross and how the only sure path towards redemption to God is through Jesus the Son with the ever-present power of the spirit. And then Paul says, if you believe this, it will change you. That, that right belief of salvation, what we have referred to as orthodoxy, ought to inspire, ought to result in right living, orthopraxy. 
And, and, and right living is just trying to live according to our design and purpose, trying to be who God created us to be. And for the Christian, we believe that that is the surest way to live joyfully and peacefully in the midst of our chaotic culture. But in addition, it turns out that our right living helps bring light to a dark culture. Our, our right living, according to God's principles, how we conduct ourselves, how we live as a family, as a church, it has a moderating effect on the culture. As Christian believers who are trying to be more Christ-like, we're helping to bring order from disorder, which is God's plan from the beginning. But it's important for us to remember that our Christian living, our right living, how we go about trying to live up to God's purpose, it is fueled by, it's initiated by, it's fed by, it's led by the Holy Spirit. It's that same Spirit of God that was present as the dark and void became light and life. That same Spirit helps us live up to our calling and live and walk in a manner worthy of our calling. So, if you have... Not that anyone here would have felt this way, but if you haven't been felt you know, bruised or battered after the last couple of sermons in particular, wives submitting to your husbands and husbands loving your wives, keep in mind that Paul gives those instructions after chapter 5, verse 18. It's the Spirit that empowers wives to submit and husbands to love. That's how it's prescribed by God's word. It's not up to us to have to figure it out. It's not up to us to have to do it all on our own, which is comforting. It's encouraging. And as we all know, it's necessary to have the Spirit help us to live the way we're supposed to live. And just like the text in, in, in Genesis, the Spirit of God is now moving in and moving through us as God's creation, as, as followers of Christ. We're being used to help bring about social order from disorder. Paul's letter calls for the church to be unified in purpose. And then he calls us out personally. Put off, put off the old self and put on the new self. Stop living like the Gentiles, like those disorderly people. You're called to live in order, with purpose. He instructs us on how we're to live with our neighbors in our society. He instructs us how we're to structure our families, wives submitting and husbands loving. And then the next few commands we're going to see today. And these are all very personal to us. Most of us are wives or husbands or children. They're, they're personal to us, but it turns out they're broadly cultural as well. The Lord's plan, of which we are part of as followers of Christ, is, is for us to establish a, a, a beachhead for order in a sinful culture. Now, it's not going to be complete, and it's not going to be perfect until Jesus comes back. But we are called to bring light to the devil-influenced darkness. To present Jesus as the only hope, as our only hope, for personal and cultural redemption. So as followers of Christ, as, as members of the body, as members of the church, as submissive husbands and loving wives, submissive wives and loving husbands, whoo! And as it turns out, as obedient children, we are part of God's plan of redemption. We benefit from it, and we encourage it in others. So the instructions that we've been given so far, the, 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 these instructions that Paul has laid out over these last few chapters are not just rules for us to live by, but they're opportunities for us to introduce Jesus, 
to a disbelieving world through our conduct and our lifestyle. That's kind of heavy. It's humbling that God would use us. And he continues this morning, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. <clears throat> so the, this call for obedience from children to parents, it really just continues the pattern that Paul has been using to establish order and structure in the church and in the family. It's, it's part of this same pattern. We're, we're now pretty well focused on just the home and the family portion. So we've covered wives and we've covered husbands. Now, children, obey your parents. I mean, this is not terribly radical stuff for most of us. And yet, our culture fights so hard against this. We are told, loudly and repeatedly, that single-parent families are fine. Don't worry about it. It doesn't really have any negative consequences or impact. In fact, we have established government assistance programs that financially encourage single-parent households. We reward what we should repair. We're told that the obvious correlation between young men in jail and lack of a two-parent household, where the father is absent, if we say that, there's a connection. It's just racism on our part. It's not a failure of moral instruction. It's not a failure of parental authority. It's not a breakdown of the family. It's just racism. It has nothing to do with the erosion of a stable two-parent family. But it seems obvious to most of us. When the family structure erodes, society collapses. I mean, we all know this to be true. When children are not taught to obey, when authority and discipline is lacking, then we see kids with little parental involvement, little parental oversight, they tend to be more rebellious. They tend to disobey parental rules, any kind of authority rules. They have more trouble in school. They go on to disobey societal laws, and it ends up leading to larger cultural and societal issues, crime and order, and disorder and chaos. I ran across this article this last week from the Institute for Family Studies. It says, sustainable societies depend upon strong families. Nations that seek to remain economically and politically vital must reproduce themselves. Children are most likely to thrive socially, emotionally, and economically when they enjoy the shelter and stability of an intact married family. Marriage is most beneficial for children when both parents are positively invested in their lives, and families are most likely to flourish when they can be built upon strong economic foundations. Now, it, it seems to me that however long it took them to come up with this research, um, their findings are not coincidental to God's plan, this is God's plan. Sustainable societies depend on strong families. As the family goes, so goes the culture. Now, this was released actually just a couple of years ago, but it's not a new idea. It's not like we've just come upon this concept. The sentiment goes even farther back. Confucius wrote, the strength of a nation derives from the integrity of the home. This is like before 1930. 
<clears throat> now, neither, as far as I can tell, neither of these two quotes are from Christian sources. I'm pretty sure this one's not. And yet, the, their recommendations seem to go hand in hand with God's plan for families as described in his book. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husband. Kids, listen to your parents. Obey your parents. They probably know a little bit more than you do at this point. They're looking out for you. Strong families make sustainable societies. It's, it's almost like it's common sense. So Paul says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. This is how it's supposed to work. Not only is it common sense, it's the right thing to do. They are your immediate authority, your parents are. They were were placed there by God to provide your welfare. And then verse 2, Paul immediately quotes the fifth of the Ten Commandments, and he says, honor your father and mother. Now, Honor means, at its minimum, obey. It's a bigger concept than that. But Paul points out that this is the only commandment that was given with a promise attached. In essence, they were told, if you honor your father and mother, it's going to go well with you. And in the original context, those original hearers, they were told that they would, excuse me, they will live long in the land. For them, that was probably an, an, a vision, an incentive, that they would see the promised land. They were going to live long enough, if they obeyed their parents, they'd live long enough to see the promised land. In our post-Jesus context, we probably understand this to be more of a heaven kind of promised land situation. Our eventual and eternal homeland, if we obey our parents, we're more likely to obey our Creator. We're more likely to obey our Heavenly Father. And between the living it out here and now, and the blessing of then and there, our obedience to our parents is still blessed. While we wait for our future home and our promised land, we benefit now with family benefits, but the culture also benefits from an orderly home life. But the word that's used for children here really has more to do with the relationship aspect of it than the age of those involved. So we read this as parents. We make the immediate connection. Yeah, our kids ought to obey us. But it really applies to anyone who has ever been birthed. We all have parents. There is no age limit on this idea of children and parents. It's it's really broader in scope than we tend to realize. When we obey, when we listen, when we give honor to our parents, we are honoring them, and by honoring them, we're honoring God. He's the one that put this authority structure in place to begin with. It gives us foundational security. It gives us peace. It gives us a sense of safety and security. And it's designed to train us up to honor and obey our ultimate authority, King Jesus. A sound family foundation leads to a sound societal foundation. So not only is this a call for children to obey their parents, it's also a call for parents, especially the fathers, to be actively involved in raising their children. Which kind of comes with a warning. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Now the first couple times I read through this, I really found it offensive and I was kind of triggered. I mean, just because I have expectations for my kids. Does that make me a bad dad? 
You know, keep your room spotless all the time. Make your beds. Be home on time. Keep your hair cut. (laughs) Don't talk to your mom that way. Don't sass your dad. As long as you're living under my roof, as long as I'm paying your insurance, as long as I'm feeding you, you're not going to get a tattoo. You're not going to get pierced. You're not going to listen to that music. You're not going to hang out with those people. I mean, you get the idea. Anybody not heard any of these things before in any context? Well, it turns out there can be kind of a fine line between effective and productive parenting that leads to good morals and respect for authority versus endless rules and authoritarian oversight and and, and punishment and discipline that foments rebellion and disobedience. Sometimes it's not so fine, but it can be a fine line. And, And sometimes it turns out that as parents, our error is not in the rules themselves, but how we administer the rules or how we administer the discipline when the rules are broken. I mean, sometimes we can be reactive and we can punish too harshly, unfairly. Sometimes we have to remember that we're not sure how this works, but two or more kids can be born from the same gene pool and living in the same house with the same parents and be totally different kids. So that as a parent, we may need to modify our approach some to achieve the desired result from one kid to the next. Because raising kids is not a one-size-fits-all affair. So as the father, as the head of the household, the spiritual leader, the ultimate responsibility falls on us. We are called to teach our kids to be obedient and respectful, to follow the rules, to follow our guidelines, because they know that those rules are in place for their own safety, for their own well-being. We're trying to teach them to love and obey their parents and to love and obey Jesus as a result. You've heard that old saying, we're trying to teach, we're trying to figure out how to tame their will without crushing their spirit. Some translations uh, say that we're to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. But the the Greek word that's used really has to do with the idea of corrective discipline. So there's discipline involved. We are called to correct. We're called to discipline improper, immoral behaviors with the goal of leading our kids to make the right choices for the right reasons. We are to love them as Christ loves us. We give ourselves up for them because Christ gave himself up for for us. And we all know, as followers of Christ, that we sometimes, sometimes often, need to be disciplined. And we know that that can be difficult. But we come to understand it's for our own benefit. It's for our our own good. And, And please notice here that What Paul calls us to is not to be our child's best friend. We're not called to be buddies for our kids. We are called to be their parents, their guardians, their teachers, their correctors, their disciplers. Hopefully, if we do that well enough, no one ever does it perfectly. I'm not even sure we even do it right most of the time, but no one ever does it perfectly. If we do those things well enough, the friendship thing will work itself out later in life. And part of how we train up our kids, part of how we instruct them about the Lord is simply how we live 
as parents? Do we follow the Lord's teachings that are directed towards us? I mean, we're expecting them to follow. Are we following? You know that expression, more is caught than taught. I think that is absolutely true. Maybe you've been in this situation. You've been in public somewhere. Um, There's nothing more frightening than that moment when you see your kid about to do something or say something in public that they shouldn't. And you know, and everybody else around you knows, they weren't taught to say that, they weren't taught to do that, but they learned it from observation. So this is on you. It was modeled for them. So parents, fathers especially, it says, teach your kids through your life and your lifestyle. Parents, stay married, work through the hard stuff. Husbands, love your wife well. Take your kids to church. Discipline your kids, but don't provoke them too strongly or too harshly. We are modeling God's love towards us. We're modeling that for our kids. And in that, somehow we're bringing order and structure to our society. Interestingly then, I think Paul moves on to address the relationship between bondservants and masters. He says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he was a bondservant or is free. Now, taken at face value, this is probably pretty foreign to most of us. Uh, It may not readily apply to most of our households. Most of us don't have slaves. Most of us don't have bondservants. We do have kids, which are much the same, but we just talked about them. So what's up with this servant-master thing? Well, we know that slavery was one of the foundational elements of the expanded Roman Empire. Some historians estimate that at the time Paul wrote this letter to Ephesus, as much as one-third of the population could have been made up of slaves and servants. It's a lot. It's a lot of people. Now, some of those slaves, servants, bond servants, were slaves as a result of, of conquest. Uh, they were captured in battle or they, they were um, bought and sold as a result of nations being overtaken, cities being conquered. Uh, some were servants as a job choice. They were like paid house staff. Some were servants that agreed to work for a period of time to pay off a financial debt. And there generally is no distinction made in scripture as to what kind of slave or servant someone is. The words are often used interchangeably. One of the common complaints against the Bible is that it never condemns slavery outright. Which is essentially true. And part of that reason could be is there were a variety of types or kinds of of slaves. I mean, for some it was their only chance of getting out of debt. But on the whole, the Bible does not speak out against slavery as an element or part of the culture. However, it does call Christians to view slaves in a fundamentally different way than was the common cultural practice. I mean, even way back in the Mosaic Law, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, there there are very specific instructions as to how the Israelites, these are God's chosen people, right, how the Israelites were to treat the slaves among them. They were to be treated with dignity. They were to be treated fairly. In many cases, they were considered part of the family. 
That pattern continues in the New Testament, which is partly why Paul includes instructions for masters and slaves here in the family context. So even though Paul does not condemn slavery outright, he does provide for proper roles and and treatment of all people. And remember, Paul's calling was to be an evangelist to the Gentiles. His goal was to share the gospel. He wasn't called to be a community activist. He wasn't called to be the leader of a social revolt. He wasn't called to be an abolitionist. He was not called to be a cultural upender. His only focus was to preach Christ and him crucified and then teach people how that led to a new life. So Paul starts with calling on slaves or servants. And remember, he's writing to the church, so he's writing to Christian slaves, Christian servants here. He calls them to obey their masters. But he says, do it with fear and trembling. Do it with a sincere heart. Don't just fake it. Don't obey sarcastically. Oh, yes, sir. I'll get that for you right away, sir. Or something like that. I can only imagine how that would go. But he says, obey as if you were obeying Christ. Don't just placate your masters. Don't do it because you're people pleasers. You want to make everybody happy. But do it for your master as if he or she was Christ himself. Now, I have to think, trying, trying to put myself in that frame of mind, that context at that time, that had to be kind of a hard thing to hear. But honestly, I'm not sure that that was any more difficult to hear than the direction given to the church or the direction to wives at that time or the direction to husbands at that time. He was calling them all to live in a fundamentally different way than the culture was living. He was calling them to a new life, to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. That can be challenging no matter what our cultural context And so this call for bondservants to obey is, is, just continues the pattern that he's established with husbands and wives and children. Whatever your role in culture, he's saying, whatever your role in the church, whatever your role in, in marriage, whatever your role in family, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Do your part as if you were doing it for Christ himself. Now one of the difficulties for us in, in really trying to get our head around this passage is that although we don't have servants per se, we might also be able to understand this in the context of employee-employer. Now we really don't like this passage. I mean, many, many of us do have masters. We do have, or at least bosses, who think they're masters. Um, and they're not always the most agreeable or easy to work for or get along with. But notice here, just like all the other previous instructions, there are no caveats or exclusionary clauses here. So we don't read about wives submit, but only if your husband is a good guy. We didn't read husbands love your wives, but only if they're submissive and obedient. And we don't read servants, employees, obey your boss if they're believers who are kind and generous not there. That's not included in any of these texts. So remember now, through our our behaviors, through our choices, through the attitudes and how we live our lives, we may well be introducing people to Christ. I mean, others may be drawn to Jesus by the difference they see in us versus what they see in the rest of the world. I can pretty much guarantee you that if you have an awful, dreadful, horrible boss but you render 
service and obedience to that boss as if he were the Lord God himself, your co-workers are going to notice. And this has the effect of honoring Christ, and it turns out being honored by Christ. I mean, the text says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. That kind of closes the loop here. Even if your boss doesn't notice your good attitude and your good work ethic, ultimately, you're not doing it for your boss. You're doing it for the Lord, and he will notice. And you will be rewarded. I mean, ideally, with a better job and a better boss, but it doesn't always work out that way. Children are rewarded with the promise for honoring their parents, and it seems that servants are rewarded for honoring their masters as well. Well, finally here, Paul turns his attention to the master, to the boss. Again, keeping in mind that he's writing this to the church. So this is a Christian boss, a Christian master. So we can't reasonably expect this from every boss. But he says, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So masters, do the same to them. I think this is just a continuation of that previous thought that Paul just aimed at slaves. Whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether bondservant or free. So uh, servants, treat your master well. Masters, treat your servants well. Do good to your employees. Stop threatening them. Start with that. In the period of time that Paul wrote this, the, the complete authority of the master would allow them to beat their servants if they wanted to or threaten to beat them it might have included imprisonment they, they, they were likely able to buy and sell them I mean, it could, it could have been a, a, a number of less than pleasant consequences from a master to a disobedient slave and Paul calls it out as a Christian master he says your obligation is to treat your slaves better than the rest of the culture treats theirs there should be a difference in the kind of boss you are Especially so if you have believing slaves. Don't threaten them. Remember, the Christian slave and the Christian master have the same Lord. You worship the same God. You believe in the same Jesus. And that God says, you're all created in my image. There's no partiality with God. You remember back in Galatians 3, Paul wrote, For those of you who've been baptized in Christ, there's no Jew or Greek. There's neither slave nor free. You're all heirs, according to the promise. So it matters, as a boss or as an employee, it matters how you treat your sisters and brothers in Christ. Now, even if you're upset that Paul doesn't go far enough to disrupt the cultural acceptance of slavery among the church, you've got to admit, this is pretty countercultural for the time. It still is in the workplace. Calling the slave and the master equal in essence and value. This is groundbreaking stuff. And history shows that it's Christians who go on to lead the charge to abolish slavery around the world. I mean, telling husbands to love their wives as themselves and telling children to obey, and the, the call to family structure and order, it's all designed to give humanity a, a glimpse, a sense of what God's creation was intended to be. With order and peace and the presence of God himself in our midst it is not coincidental 
that as our current culture in the U.S. anyway, as our current culture is so divided on so many issues, it is not coincidental that it's also true that we have the lowest percentage of people who claim to be Christ followers. We also have high divorce rates. We have high incarceration rates. We have high number of of births out of wedlock and the lowest percentage of people who say they believe in Jesus. When we give up on trying to follow or fulfill God's plan for us, when when we reject his guidance, we, we feel free to follow our own wisdom, we end up with chaos and disorder rather than structure and order. There is a direct causal link. I just started reading a couple days ago a book by Bill Bennett called Trial by Fire. It's an overview, a brief overview of the first thousand years of Christianity. And in the book, he he refers to another book that he read by Harvard professor Neil Ferguson. And Neil Ferguson had come across a study conducted by the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. They had conducted this multi-year Uh, several-year-long survey, attempting to identify what are the the dominant factors that made the Western civilization so successful as compared to some of the other cultures of the world. What made America work so well for so long? They wrote part of their summary, we studied everything we could from the historical, political, economic, and cultural perspective. At first, we thought it was because you had more powerful guns than we had. Then they said... We thought it was because you had the best political system. Next, we focused on your economic system. But in the past 20 years, this is a long study, in the past 20 years, we have realized that the heart of your culture is your religion, Christianity. That's why the West has been so powerful. The Christian moral foundation of social and cultural life was what made possible the emergence of capitalism and then the successful transition to democratic politics. We don't have any doubt about this. Now, I share this because I think it's helpful for us to think about because we can get so overwhelmed sometimes just trying to do what we are called to do that we can forget why it is we're called to do it. A wife being called to submit or respect her husband, a husband called to love his wife, children and servants called to obedience. There, there are immediate benefits for all parties concerned as families function better, but there are larger consequences to this as well. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are being led to redemption. By the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we're being led to sanctification and perfection in fits and starts. But we're becoming better church members, we're becoming better neighbors, we're developing better families. We're pointing towards Jesus in and through our lives with the promise of the return of Jesus. We're looking forward to an eternal reward to dwell eternally in God's perfectly restored kingdom. And we're showing glimpses of that through how we live, through how our influence impacts the culture around us. We're going to leave behind chaos and disorder and sickness and disease and death, and we will eventually experience freedom and joy and order and peace. And by living with that goal in mind now, we are showing others the hope that we have. Be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in you. We are pointing others to Christ. Our very lives are evangelistic. 
So may we live up to our calling in a worthy manner. Let's pray. Lord, again, we're just uh, grateful and in awe of the, the depth and the richness of your revealed word. Lord, it's, it's humbling to consider that as flawed and imperfect and fragile as we are, uh, you still choose to work through us. You still use, this, use us to help bring about your plan of redemption. Lord, I pray that as, as those of us who are gathered here uh, as followers of Christ, who gather in your name, Lord, m- may we continue to devote ourselves to these simple instructions that you've laid out here for husbands to love our wives better, for wives to submit and respect our husbands better, for children to obey better. And Lord, may we see the benefit from that in our own families, but may we also be aware of how that impacts the culture around us. We are called to share the love of Christ. We can do that uh, through conversations. We can do that through uh, things that we write or people that we talk to, but we also do it just by how we live our life. So, Lord, help us be more focused on fulfilling the roles that you've given us as husbands, as wives, as children, as bosses, as, as employees. Lord, help us figure out how we can be better, uh, better fulfill the, the calling that you've placed on us in those different contexts. And that through that, we, we gain a, a real love for the culture, a real love for those who are lost. We, we know that there are people looking. They're trying to fill their lives with so many empty things right now. Lord, may we stand firm. Show your love for us. Share your love to them. And help us be the, the followers of Christ. Help us be the church that you've called us to be. We thank you for your great love and your great patience towards us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat>